Hey, my name's Steve Wallen. I'm the campus pastor here at the Noblesville campus. It's so good to be with you. I'm really excited. This is kind of a new thing for me, but I'm really excited to be here at Noblesville, uh, mainly because I've been at Carmel for nine years and they've heard all my jokes. And so now that I'm here, uh, I was going to have to come up with some new material, but I don't have to now because I've got nine years worth of stuff saved up that I can just use on you guys. And I know you'll be really gracious about it. No, uh, really, my name is Steve, and uh, that is a new development that I'm the campus pastor here. So let me tell you a little bit about myself for those of you who, don't, uh, who haven't met me. Um, I came on staff at Genesis in 2011, about 10 years ago, and uh, I've been at Carmel about six months after we... Uh, came, after I came here, we decided to launch that Carmel campus. So I've been at Carmel almost that entire time. But before that, I spent 21 years in corporate America doing uh, roles like general management. But I started in manufacturing and I ended in human resources before I felt the Lord calling me into full-time ministry. Uh, I've been married to Benita for 28 years now. Uh, in fact, today is the 29th anniversary of our engagement. And so we're going to celebrate that later uh, with our annual trip to Taco Bell. That's how we do. I'll tell you that story someday, but I'm not kidding. Uh, and I'm also, she's definitely my better half, by the way, and you'll find that out as well. I'm also a dad, in case you won't be able to tell by my jokes. I thought I'd tell you that. I'm a dad. I have two kids. Gracie just turned 19. Audrey is 17. And that means that we have now successfully taught two teenage girls to drive. And so how about that? That's a, that's a good thing. And I have to tell you that our girls are actually really good drivers. I'm proud of them for the way they've learned. But there's one thing that they're not good at that I think they maybe won't be ever as good at as our generation was, and that's finding their way. I, I don't know if you have teenagers or not, but my girls are always asking me, Dad, how do you just know how to go everywhere without looking at a map? And I'm like, well, you know, I've been here before. I've looked at it. And, but they've never had to use one of these. Right? How many of you had, at some point when you were learning to drive, had a full-size map in your glove box? Yeah. And so you get one of these out. Any state that you want to drive through, this happens to be the state of Ohio, but you get this out, right? And wherever you're going to go, you pull this out and you unfold it and you go, okay, I'm going to Cincinnati. So where's that? Here are all the roads that are possible. And you can learn all the possible ways to get there. And you get this feeling that if what way is north and what way is west? And you learn that instead of just Google saying, turn left. And if that's all you ever hear, you're never going to learn where things are because all you know is, well, I go left and then I go right and then I go left. And that's fine. But uh, the maps are great because the maps help you get a sense of where everything is in respect to other things, right? Hey, there's one other thing that maps do for you as well. This prepares you for domestic life because if you can properly fold a glove box map, you will never, ever have a problem with a fitted sheet. Now, this is just so much harder than that. And so you can get this folded up and put it in the glove box somehow like that. And then you're all ready to go. This is about how mine always looked when I was learning to drive too. Um, but some of you are maybe a little younger. That's cool. But you didn't learn to drive with a map. But how many of you remember when you learned to drive, you would go to MapQuest and you would print off the directions that had turn by turn instructions, right? And you had the little map on the back, but then you also had every turn. Now these are great too, because they tell you every turn you need to make. But the problem is when you run into something unexpected, you, you run into a crash that you didn't know about, you run into road construction or a bridge is out, and you never really get to figure out where you're supposed to go, right? You put that on the passenger seat with your igloo cooler and your CDs, and you're all ready to go on whatever road trip you want, right? But then you run into construction, you run into a delay, and how on earth do you get around that? How do you figure out where everything is relative to everything else? If you can't read a map, you can't really get the big picture. 
And I think that's kind of true when we read Scripture, too. You know, we're in week seven of our series called Planted, and what we're doing is we're reading through the entire Bible together. And just to remind you, the, the whole objective of this is not to get through every day of the reading plan. Okay, it's not to check it off your list and make sure that, oh, I got through that chapter, I got through that chapter. We've called it Planted for a reason. That, that name comes from Psalm chapter one, and there's a promise attached to the reading of God's word. And it says this, that, uh, that whoever delights in the law of the Lord and who meditates on it day and night is like a tree planted by streams of water who bears its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither and who prospers in everything that they do. And that's, that's who we want to be. That's the promise that God makes if we meditate on scripture day and night. And so that's what we want to do. But sometimes isn't it true that reading these early books of the Old Testament can be a withering experience? right? It's hard. It's difficult. And it's made harder when you can't keep track of the people and the nations and the places because we're not familiar with the geography. And so before we get too far into today's message, um, I want to take a look backward and just see where we've been. Way back in Genesis chapter 12, uh, in the, we talked about this week too, God made a promise to a man named Abram. He said, if you trust me, I will make your family into a great nation I will give your family a special land to live in. We call that the promised land because it's the land that God promised to Abraham and his people. And he said that the entire world would be blessed through your family, Abram. Now pay attention because that promise is the basis of every other story that we're gonna read throughout the rest of this year, every other story in detail in scripture after that. And so this promise starts Abram on this lifelong journey. In chapter 13, we see this, that Abram went to live near the great trees of Mamre in Hebron where he pitched his tents. There he built an altar to the Lord. So God makes this promise, and this is where Abram is at the time. He's up near this place called Hebron, which to help you with the geography of this, you can see is right here, point number one on the map. Uh, I know it's a little bit hard to read maybe from where you are, but this is just a little bit east of Jerusalem. It's on the other side of the Jordan River from what we now know as Israel. So this is just outside uh, what will come to be known as the promised land, the land that God promised to Abram. This is where he starts his journey, okay? Now, in Genesis 15, God lets Abram know that this promise of this land, of this great nation, that everybody will be blessed through you, doesn't come uh, without challenges. Genesis 15, then the Lord said to him, know for certain that for 400 years, your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated there. He says, but I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. Now, in the fourth generation, God says, your descendants, Abram, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. So he says, 400 years, your people, the ones that I just promised, I'm going to make a great nation of, I'm going to give this land to for 400 years, they're going to go into another land and be held as slaves. But on the fourth generation, they'll come back out and they'll come back here. Where is Abram? He's at Hebron, just outside the promised land. They'll come back here. Uh, and now this is important because what God is doing here is he's predicting the entire book of Exodus. He's predicting this entire story here to Abraham a few hundred years before it even happened. And if you read through Genesis and into Exodus, you learn that Abraham's family uh, becomes known as the Israelites, the nation of Israel. They move to Egypt because of a famine. Remember that God saves them through a man named Joseph. We talked about that a few weeks ago. Uh, Egypt is 
so we got map one up there. Uh, we got the map up there. Point two is Egypt. You can see that's the north of Egypt, point two. So they go over there to be with Joseph. And while they're there, they grow to be a mighty nation, as God promised, but they're slaves. And eventually they become slaves of the Egyptians and they're slaves for how long? Can anybody guess? 400 years. That's what God said, right? That's what God predicted. It's almost like he knew what he was talking about. Pfft, my mind is blown right now. So they're slaves in Egypt for 400 years. And after Joseph, we meet Moses. And after 400 years of slavery, God uses Moses to leave the Israelites from Egypt to freedom from Egypt uh, on a journey to finally take possession of the land that he had promised them 400 years earlier. Now, hopefully you're starting to get the picture and see how this all fits together. After releasing them from slavery, God miraculously parts the Red Sea. That's down around point number three on the map. Uh, God parts the Red Sea so the Israelites can walk through it and then he uh, lets it cave back in and swallows up the Egyptian army. So he saves them there. And then uh, they lead, leads them to Mount Sinai, which is point four on our map. Mount Sinai down at the bottom. That's where God gives the nation of Israel the law, the Ten Commandments. Moses goes up on Mount Sinai to receive that. Uh, so you can see that. Now that quick summary actually covers 45 days of our reading. So let me just say this, if you haven't uh, started Implanted, maybe you're here for the first time or maybe you haven't started the reading plan, it's not too late to start. And I would say, don't go back to the beginning and try to catch up. Just start where we are, today's day 45. And I promise you, you haven't missed the best part yet, okay? And so you can do that now. So 45 days of reading all summed up in about five minutes. Uh, and we're gonna start, brings us to where we're gonna start today, which is in the book of Numbers. Uh, Numbers chapter one says this, the Lord spoke to Moses in the tent of meeting in the desert of Sinai. So this is right outside Mount Sinai, the desert of Sinai on the first day of the second month of the second year. Don't have to remember that. We're going to come back to it in a minute. On the first day of the second month of the second year after the Israelites came out of Egypt, he said, take a census of the whole Israelite community by their clans and families, listing every man by name, one by one. This is really important. We're going to come back to that, but here's what we're going to see. Okay. We start in Numbers, the Israelites have been free for just over a year. That passage says in the first day of the second month of the second year, which means that they have been free now for one year and one month and one day. One year, one month, and one day, right? First day of the second month of the second year. And so about 13 months, 14 months, they have been free people. And in that 14 months or 13 months, we've seen that God has led them out of slavery from the Egyptians. He's parted the Red Sea and let the Israelites walk through while the Egyptian army is swallowed up and destroyed. He's provided daily bread for them in the desert through in the form of manna. He provided water in the middle of a desert for them. And then when they got tired of the bread and water, God sent quail so that they could have meat to eat. Now, he led them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And he even allowed his presence to dwell in the middle of the Israelite people in a place called the tabernacle, this tent that they had built so that they could physically see and know that God was with them, that he was among them. But in spite of all the amazing things that God has done to express his love for them, well, we see the Israelites always seem to be complaining. Well, this pattern of grumbling and disobedience continues throughout the book of Numbers, but in his faithfulness, God continues to show them patience and love so they can learn to trust the promises he'd made to them. So they've been free one year, one month, and one day, and God makes this command from verse two, take a census of the whole Israelite community, which means that the book of Numbers starts with counting. Ah, ah, ah. That's my best count from Sesame Street. Um, 
it starts with counting, but it's not just counting for counting's sake. They're counting so that the nation of Israel could form an army. They're counting capable men who are of age to fight so that they could form an army and prepare to go take over the promised land. And then when we get to Numbers 13, we see this, that uh, Moses, by God's command, appoints 12 spies to go into the promised land and just see what's there. And we see this, Numbers 13, 21. So they went up and explored the land from the desert of Zin, as far as Rehob, towards Lebo Hamath. They went up through the Negev and came to Hebron. Wait a minute, Hebron, that sounds familiar, right? That's point one on our map. Remember that? So in a year, in a day, in a month, they've come uh, from point one all the way over to Egypt, point two, down through the Red Sea, point three, down to Mount Sinai, point four, and now they're up back at Hebron, back, right back where God made the promise to Abram that he was going to make him a great nation and he was going to give them this land. And now here they are. Twelve, so think about this. These 12 spies that go up into the promised land, one year ago, they were living in Egypt in slavery. And now here they are standing right back in the very place where God promised, I'm going to give you, God promised Abram, I'm going to give you that land. I'm going to make you into a powerful nation. Can you imagine how encouraging and how exciting that must be for the people of Israel to be right on the doorstep of the land that God promised? And here are these 12 spies going into this place to look it over. And it's even better than they thought. These spies go into this land and they come off and they come out and they cut off a single cluster of grapes. And these grapes are ginormous. They're so big that it takes two people to carry a cluster of grapes on a pole between them. And so here come the 12 spies. They march back into camp. After 40 days, they've got this big cluster of grapes and the people are excited. And especially when they hear this report, Numbers 13, 27, the spies gave Moses this account. We went into the land which you sent us and it does flow with milk and honey. Now this phrase, flowing with milk and honey, is repeated often throughout the Old Testament and it's in reference to the land that God promised the nation of Israel. And as you probably guessed, it means it was very, very fertile. This land was very fertile. The, the reference to milk means that there was plenty of pasture land so that the livestock had place to graze and produce milk. The idea of honey means that there were plenty of farmlands available, places where bees could go and draw nectar so that they can make honey and then spread that to pollinate more plants. In other words, this is the perfect place for God to build a new nation. This is the perfect place for God's people to live and settle just like God had promised but there was some bad news too. The spies brought some bad news. The very next verse says this, but the people who live there are powerful and the cities are fortified and very large. And they go on, verse 31. We can't attack these people. They're stronger than we are. And they, the spies, spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. Now, in the end, only two of the 12 spies that went, Joshua and Caleb, say that they should go and take the land. That's the land God has promised us. He said it's going to be good. I've seen the fruit. It's good. We need to go. That's two guys out of 12. Two guys, Joshua and Caleb. The other 10 start spreading this bad report. We shouldn't go. We can't attack. They're stronger than we are. The cities are, are too fortified. Now, at this point, the people of God have a decision to make. Do they choose the fruit or the fear? Do they believe the promise of God? <laughs> the giant big fruit of God's promise, the God who 
gave them this land 400 years earlier, the God who led them out of slavery, the God who split the sea open for them, the God who provided bread and water and meat in the desert. Do they believe that God and choose the fruit or do they believe the 10 spies? Fruit or fear? Put yourself in that position for a minute. Let's pretend there's this thing right in front of you that God has promised you and you know it was him. You know it was his voice. You see it from where you're standing. It's so close you can smell the fruit trees in bloom. You know you heard him right. He's already given it to you. But then there's this other voice in the back of your head that's saying you can't go after that. You're not strong enough. You're not smart enough. You're not good enough. There's nothing special about you. You don't have the right skills. What do you do? Do you choose the fruit or the fear? Look at what Israel did. Numbers 14 says, that night, all the members of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. And I just want to stop right there and say, I think that's a very valid response. Like they're, they're crying out to God. When we're hit in the face with fear, we shouldn't be afraid to voice that fear, that to cry out to God or even just to cry out. You know, that's a natural response. But then they say this, all the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron and the whole assembly said to them, if only we had died in Egypt or in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, we should choose a leader and what? Go back to Egypt. That's a refrain we see throughout this period in the Israelites' life. We should go back to Egypt. Now, here's what's happening here. The, the people's faith in God is crumbling. Even after everything that's happened, after all the great things they've seen God do, when the faith of Israel was challenged, okay, when it was tested, it begins to shatter. They're complaining about where they are and what they're going through and what they don't have and who's leading them. And their cries to the Father have turned into complaints. There, there's a distinct difference, by the way, between crying out to God and complaining to God. You know that, right? That, that, that cries are a valid response. A cry is a, a deep lament, a plea for help in the middle of our suffering. I remember when our daughter was a toddler and she was uh, learning to talk and she was walking around and sometimes when something would happen, she would start to cry and uh, she would come up and she would do this and my wife would always say, do you want mommy to hold you? And so my daughter started saying, mommy holds you? Mommy holds you? You know that you, maybe you've had that happen with one of your kids in your house. It's so cute. It's so adorable. You know it's wrong, but you don't want to change it because it's like, oh, it's something I'm always going to remember. I, that is the posture of crying out to God. Like when you hold your hands up in the air and you, you look up like, God, I need you. I, I need you to come and comfort me right now. I need you to come and rescue me right now. I need you to come and make this whole thing right. That's what it means to cry out to God. That's a valid response in our fear. Now, a complaint is different. A complaint is a verbal raid against injustice that we perceive has been exercised on us. It's our way of saying, we deserve better than this. Now, if, if this is the posture of a cry, uh, this is the posture of complaint. Now, I have my kids have gone from this to this, right? Because they're teenagers. And so this is the posture that uh, we sometimes um, take when we're complaining against God. Um, and when we complain against God and crying out, we express our trust in God, 
our dependence on him, like we need you in this moment right now. Crying out to God is expressing our pain and our suffering and our need for help. God, we need you. And crying out, we express that we trust you, God. You're our heavenly father. We recognize that you're the one who loves us. You're the one who sees us. You hear our cries. You are concerned about us. And, and just know that we can trust him even when his response is delayed or it's not what we expected. But complaining Complaining to God is the opposite. Complaining is instead of trusting him with what he thinks the best result would be, it's complaining reveals an attitude that we say, I know what is best for me and I demand God that you respond how I want you to, to respond. That's what a complaint is. And, and, and I have to tell you that every one of us at some point is gonna be challenged in our faith. If you're not being challenged right now, you will be. If you haven't been before, you will be someday. Every one of us will be challenged. And I have to tell you, when we're challenged, we are going to have to ask this question, do I trust God or do I trust the world? Do I choose the fruit or do I choose the fear? And I want to remind you that those challenges, those, those trials, they're a good thing. They're a good thing. But what do the people of Israel want to do? They want to go back to Egypt. They want to rush out of the desert. They just want to escape the whole thing. They, they want to get away. This, this testing... This testing is really trying their patience. But I want to remind you that the test is good. Don't rush out of the desert. Don't rush out of the wilderness. How many of you know someone whose faith you admire? Like, you know, that, that, right, raise your hand if you have somebody. Like, they're a person that you know, no matter what happens to them, uh, they're going to trust God in that, right? They're going to know that... Uh, when the cancer comes back, they're gonna say, I know that God's got it. When, when they're faced with some kind of uh, trial, when they lose their job, when something happens to them, when they have a relationship breakdown, when they have a crisis with their kids, something's gonna happen and they will say, I don't know what the future holds, but I know who holds the future. Something like that, right? You know somebody with faith like that? I promise you they weren't born that way. That they grew their faith into that, that God grew their faith into that, and He grows it. The way He grows our faith is by trials. They, they build, he builds our faith by us being challenged. And maybe your faith isn't like that right now. I mean, maybe you've hit a rut. Maybe you remember those days, if you're a follower of Jesus, maybe you remember those days when your faith was new and exciting. Like every time you opened scripture, it was like the Lord was speaking directly to you, new things to you. Every time you prayed, you felt this palpable presence like he was in the room and he was speaking to you and you could hear him and he could hear you. And every time you heard that worship song, like you got goosebumps and you just couldn't wait to get back in the car after that meeting so that you could go and turn on Caleb and listen to that song that you love so much. But now that never happens. You can't stand to open your Bible. Church has become a bore. You can't wait to rush out of here when it's done. Might I suggest that you're in the middle of a trial? And I just want to beg you, don't rush out of that wilderness. I want you to imagine that you discover a grade school prodigy, all right? You're at practice with one of your kids or one of your friends, and you discover somebody who's better than anyone you've ever seen at that thing. Uh, maybe, maybe it's a musician or maybe she's an amazing gymnast, but let's just say he's a football player. Let's say you find the best fifth grade quarterback in the entire universe. Like you think, you, there's no way Peyton Manning was this good when he was 11. And so you're, and you know, because you 
you're a parent and you've been watching this for four years. And so, you know, you've got like all the talent scout in you. And so you see this quarterback and you go, that kid is going to be a first round draft pick. He's going to be an amazing quarterback in the NFL. I just know it. And so you think I've got to do something about this. So you take that kid under your wings and you teach him everything you know about football. And I know for some of you, that's not very much. I get it, but we're pretending here. Okay. And so you you're going to take that kid under his wing and you're going to teach him everything you know about football. And you start to talk to him. And what you find out is that, well, he doesn't like practice very much and he doesn't really want to go. And uh, he doesn't want to want to go anywhere near a weight room. And you know, that's a problem because if you're going to get good at something, you've got to practice it, right? And if you're going to be a professional football player, you've got to get big and strong. And the way you do that is with, with weights and with sprints and with box jumps and with all of the things that you need to run into in a gym because those things are trying, right? They test us, they test our bodies, but in the end, they make us stronger, they make us better players. Well, it's the same thing for our faith. You know, when we strengthen our faith is when it's tested. And the bigger the test, the harder it feels when we're in it, but the better the result in the end. No less than James, the brother of Jesus, said it this way in James chapter 1. He said, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. James says, Consider it joy when you're in a trial. Not just like accept the trial and move on, right? Not just tolerate the trial. He says, when you're in a trial, you should think of it as a joyful time in your life. Why? Because, he says, the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And that means that we can last longer, right? Perseverance means that we can stand up under pressure. And he says, the perseverance finishes its work so that you may become mature and complete like that person you know who has amazing faith, right? That that's how they grew that amazing faith, that they were tested and tried. And in that trial, they experienced perseverance. And because of that perseverance, they grew to be mature and complete in their faith. That's the pattern of growth. Perseverance, um, or trials produce perseverance. Perseverance produces maturity. Because let me, just, let me just be honest with you. It's really easy to be a Christian when things are good. Isn't it? Like, when the Mercedes is shined up and you got friends over at the house and job's going well and the money's flowing in and the, the kids are hitting the honor roll and playing their sports and doing all their things and they're at the top of their class and they're doing great. It's easy to be a Christian, right? When the relationship's going well and you're, you're in good health, you've never felt better, it's easy to be a follower of Jesus. But man, it's a lot harder when things are tough when the roof starts leaking, when the refrigerator breaks down, you're driving the old beater with a couple hundred thousand miles on it, and you're not even sure if it'll get you to work in the morning. Or maybe you don't even have work in the morning because you lost the job or the business closed, the friends have left, the relationship ended. And all your friends are gathered around you and they say, well, you know, God is good all the time. And you're like, yeah, you know, I'm not so sure about that. Because if God is good all the time, why does it seem he's never good to me? That's when it's hard. It's hard to be a follower of Jesus like that. That's the trial. Back to the Israelites. They, they complain about God and God has had enough. 
In Numbers chapter 14, we see this really weird conversation between God and Moses. And God is like, you know what, Moses? I'm tired of these people complaining. I'm just going to strike them down. I'm just going to send a plague. I'll wipe them all out. You, Moses, have been faithful. I'll send you a whole new group of people to do life with. And Moses is like, no, God, please. He starts begging and pleading for the lives of the Israelites. And you know what? God relents. Because of Moses' prayer, God changes his mind and saves the lives of the Israelites. And maybe that's all you need today. Maybe all you need to know is that we serve a good and gracious and loving Father. And He is patient, and He is kind, and He is compassionate, and He's slow to anger, and He's on your side. And if that's all you need to hear from the message today, take that with you. That's your heavenly father. So God relents and he spares the people of Israel, but there's a compromise in there that he makes with Moses. Numbers 14, 20 says this, the Lord replied, I have forgiven them as you ask. Nevertheless, as surely as I live and as surely as the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth, not one of those who saw my glory and the signs I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, but who disobeyed me and tested me 10 times, not one of them will ever see the land I promised on oath to their ancestors. Not one, no one who has treated me with contempt will ever see it. See, because of their disobedience, because of their grumbling, because of their complaining, the entire population of Israel, remember those that he counted back in Numbers 1, the census, Numbers, two, numbers 1, 2? Um, none of those people get to see the promised land. Not even Moses gets to go. There's only two exceptions, Joshua and Caleb, those two spies that came back and said, yes, we can do it, we can take it. Those two guys, they're gonna to get to see the promised land, but even Moses doesn't get a go. And so for 39 years, the next 39 years, the Israelites do this. They wander around on the doorstep of the promised land until a whole generation died off and a new generation came along that was ready to take, take the land. Now, can you imagine... You, you can argue that it was the disobedience of the Israelites that caused this wandering. And you'd be right. There's no question about that. That's why God sent them there. But I think there was something deeper to that. Something deeper going on in this moment. And I think the Lord still had some work to do in the nation of Israel. You know what I mean? Like he had gotten the Israelites out of Egypt, but he never got the Egypt out of the Israelites. Right? And so he knew it was going to take some work to prepare them for the promised land. When they would eventually go in, he didn't want them living like they lived in Egypt. He also didn't want them living like the nations that they were displacing, like the people of Canaan. They were all worshiping multiple gods and they were doing things against uh, the Mosaic law that God had given to Moses. And so he had to spend some time putting them through trials and testing their faith and maturing them until they were ready. I got to tell you, for many of us, the last 12 months has felt like wandering in the wilderness. Like we suffered a lot as a, as a nation, as a community, as a, as a world, as a people over the last year. We've suffered with sickness. We've suffered with job loss. And some of us have lost loved ones or businesses or longtime careers. Many of us have gotten so caught up in political causes that we've lost friends or family over it. Some of us have even lost our sense of identity. Like we don't even know who we are anymore. It's hard. I get it. There's nothing wrong with wishing God would just take away the pain and pull us out of the desert. 
And sometimes he does that. Sometimes he will, he'll do that. But sometimes, I mean, sometimes the journey is long and the process is slow and it can be very difficult because, but he's gonna make us go through it because he's a loving, compassionate father and he's got some trying to do. He's got some testing of our faith to do. He's got some shaping to do in us. But here's what's true. I want you to know today that he is a father that promises to be with us in the pain. He promises to hear our cries. He promises he will not abandon us in the desert. So what will you choose? The fruit or the fear? No, on the night before Jesus died, he cried out to his father to be rescued from the desert. He cried out and asked if there was another way. Can this cup be taken from me? Could there be some relief from his suffering, but there was no other way? And so Jesus endured the most difficult death that anyone can imagine. He gave up his life on the cross. He died the death that you and I deserve so that we could make it to the promised land on the other side of this wilderness that we're in now. The cross means that Jesus, Jesus suffered for us. He interceded on our behalf. He saved us when God could have given up on us. Jesus is the better Moses, right? Jesus endured a period of separation from God so that you and I would never have to. When Jesus was on the cross, he cried out, why have you abandoned me? Why have you forsaken me? We don't have to cry that out. Jesus endured that for us. God sent him to do that for us. He sent him to intercede for us, to take our place, to die as a substitute for us. That's what a loving father does, and that's how he provides for his children in the wilderness. Don't waste it. Don't waste it. Don't waste his gift. Don't waste this time that you spend in the desert. Don't waste your trial. Let God use it to shape you into who he made you to be. Would you pray with me? Father God, I'm thankful. Uh, maybe that sounds, this sounds weird. I'm thankful for the trials. You said to consider it pure joy whenever we face trials of many kinds. And God, I'll just confess, I have a hard time seeing joy in those moments where my faith is being tried. But because you said it, because you declared it, that we should consider it pure joy, Lord, in the middle of my trials, I declare I will be joyful. I will consider those moments of bliss and of providence and of your divine intervention, even when I think this is too tough, I can't take it. Lord, I wanna pray for those in the room right now who are in a trial that's so hard, it's been so tough, it's been so trying and exhausting on their health or on their family or just on their mental capacity, on their life, that they don't know if they can make it to the other side. Lord, you have promised to be with us in our trials. Would you just reveal yourself to them in an amazing way this morning? Would you let them know that you are their loving father and you care about them and that you hear their cries and that you are with them no matter how hard that trial seems. Father, I pray for those of us who are walking with friends and family through trials right now that we see every day it's getting worse and we just don't know how to support them. We don't know what to say and we don't know how to act. Uh, Lord, would you help us to be friends that will be with our friends in the trial? Help us to know what to say when something needs to be said, but to be quiet when we need to be quiet and just listen and sit with them and take it in. And Lord, help us to help them consider it joy as well. 
Father, I thank you for the trials of my faith that have grown my faith. I know I have a long way to go. I think I speak for a lot of people in this room when I say we got a long way to go in growing our faith, Lord, but we trust you. We believe you have our best interest in heart. And Lord, we cry out to you now. We raise our arms and we look, look up to the skies. We look to you, Lord, and we say we trust you. We need you. Lord, we need you in our lives. We need you in our hearts. We need you in our homes and in our families. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.